Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, We've come to the seventh and final week of our series that we're calling Finding Jesus in Genesis. We haven't done seven straight weeks. We began with three weeks kind of just prior to Advent, did Advent, Christmas tide, then picked back up and have been in it now for a few weeks. Um, But this series has really been an exploration of the Old Testament book of Genesis in search for themes and circumstances in which we can identify uh, Jesus and the good news of Christ. Uh, My true um, hope and prayer is that this series has been helpful to you. Um, I hope that it has given you an idea of how to see some of these stories with new eyes that are maybe familiar to you, Um, these kind of famous stories from the book of Genesis, but hopefully we've been able to see them with new eyes. Um, But my my hope is also that I've kind of given you at least a a tool set for how to begin to read other stories and look for kind of Christ-centered themes and use Jesus as the interpretive center of how we read the Bible. And while I talk about this as being the end of the series, the truth is we're just going to continue with this work for the next four weeks in a brand new series that we're calling Finding Jesus in Exodus. (laughs) So... We put our marketing team to hard work, and they developed this, and we're just really excited about the work that they've done. So uh, we don't have a marketing team. Um, Well, I guess you might be looking at the marketing team. Um, So here's what we've done. We've kind of walked our way through Genesis, beginning with creation, Adam and Eve, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham and Isaac, uh, last week Jacob, and now Joseph. Uh, You remember Jacob was renamed Israel. Uh, Israel had 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is the 11th of those sons, but the first son uh, from Jacob's beloved Rachel. Uh, And so Joseph, being the son of Rachel, is in fact the favored son among the 12. This is made quite clear uh, by Jacob uh, because he gives uh, Joseph the coat of many colors. And so uh, he's a favored son. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take a scan of Joseph's life. Uh, Because I think it's going to be in kind of finding the broad sweep, looking at the contour of his life that we're going to discover uh, and find Jesus. And what we'll find is that this is, in fact, uh, a gospel-shaped story. This is a gospel-shaped story if, in fact, we know uh, where to find these kind of themes. And so... Uh, So let's begin. At the age of 17, Joseph had a series of dreams, and I want to read uh, Genesis 37. We're going to be in a number of scriptures. You can follow along on the screen, or you can uh, click along on your device as well. Or if you're like me and you brought your hard copy Bible, you can turn there as well. It's all within a few pages. Uh, But Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 5, says this. One night Joseph, this is at age 17, one night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Which is to say they already hated him because was, he was very clearly the favorite son. Okay, So they hated him even more, or more than ever. Listen to this dream, Joseph said. We were all out in a field tying up bundles of grain when suddenly my bundle of grain stood up 
and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. <laughs> His brothers responded, do you think that you will actually be king over, you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think that you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about them. Um, these dreams, this dream and these dreams, he'll go on to have another one that's even more um, bold, shall we say. Uh, but these dreams put him at odds with his family. Again, he was a beloved son, but he was then rejected by his own people. He's a beloved son who's been rejected by his own people. Um, there's lots of family drama in the book of Genesis. So I don't know if you ever have family drama, uh, but if you do, maybe read some Genesis just to feel like I'm not alone, right? Uh, I'm not alone in this, in this track, in this journey of family drama. Uh, but Joseph was at odds with his brothers because he was obvious favorite. And then a dream about the 11 of them bowing down before him didn't exactly help Joseph win his brothers over. And after this, he actually has another dream. If you just keep reading from where we left off, he has another dream. But this time, the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down before him, which is to say, not just the brothers, but the mom and the dad are going to bow down before me as well, the sun and the moon. Um, now, when his brothers learned of this dream, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, that was really the last straw in all of this family drama. The brothers realized that they need help handling their negative emotions, so they seek the help of a professional counselor, while Joseph learns to share the content of his dreams more humbly. Thanks for coming this morning. This is not what happens. Uh, what happens is uh, the brothers decide to devise a plot uh, to kill Joseph. So turn over. It just gets more exciting. Okay, so Joseph, or, uh, Genesis chapter 37, this time beginning with verse 18. 37 verse 18. Now when, brothers, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him from a distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. Then we can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. And we'll become the one, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Okay. Uh, I'll spoil the ending. They don't end up killing Joseph, but they do sell him into slavery. And, in fact, fake his death um, to their father by stealing his robe, uh, dipping it in blood so that it appears that it was, he was killed by a wild animal. Um, is that a little better than actually killing him? I don't know. Like, are we supposed to be like, good job, brothers, not following through on your plan? Like, I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to think about all this. But that's what happens. They don't kill him. They sell him into slavery. So Joseph was taken as a slave to be bought and sold. Uh, in other words, Joseph has descended into the depths. And then skipping some other crazy events in his life, as if it weren't crazy enough already, he ends up in an Egyptian, in an Egyptian jail. And while there, he also has dreams. Remember, Joseph is a dreamer. So he has dreams while he's in prison. He also uh, is fairly good at interpreting dreams, as it turns out. And so he has dreams, he interprets dreams, uh, and he becomes kind of, he gets a reputation as someone who is wise, uh, who works hard, and who, is, who has the favor of the Lord upon his life. In fact, the scriptures are actually very clear to say that explicitly, that that Joseph has the favor of God 
on his life. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all this kind of craziness, he's now in jail interpreting dreams, but the Lord's favor is on his life. It turns out that when the Pharaoh, that is the person in charge of all of Egypt, when the Pharaoh needs to understand some dreams that he was having, uh, they go to Joseph because of his reputation for having dreams, for understanding dreams, for being someone who is wise and has wisdom. So they go to Joseph. Joseph interprets those dreams. And then unbelievably, in a crazy twist of, of events, Joseph is then made second in command just under Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Turn over to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, this time beginning with verse 41. Give me a second here. Verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing, hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Whoa. Uh, so here we have a son. He's the beloved son, but he's hated by his own people, sold into slavery, but then raised up into a place of prominence. This is an unbelievable turnaround. Something like this just doesn't happen without the hand of God. For he had been moved from prison into a position of power. His life and career had taken a real change, and now he was finally successful. He had influence, he held a great degree of power, and he had proximity to even greater power. This is a true rags-to-riches story. The underdog, the underdog, hated by his brothers and left for dead, was now second in command in all of the empire. And those childhood dreams of greatness had come to fulfillment. Cue inspirational music. Cut to the post-credit scene of Joseph chumming it up with Pharaoh. He's dressed in fine fabrics. He's accessorized in gold and laughing in slow motion. <laughs> right? He takes a bite. He, he has a pear, but he eats it like an apple, and the pear juices just like flow all over his face. This is all happening in slow motion, right? It's, it, and he's just like <laughs> living it up. Rags to riches, from the pit to power. The greatness that he dreamed of as, as a child has finally come true. What a great story. I've told you this is a gospel-shaped story. And for many people, success, upward mobility, proximity to power are in fact the goal of life, and some even understand that to be the point of the gospel. For many, we could stop right there and we might say, there it is, God has put Joseph, has brought him from the pit to the palace, praise be to God, end of story, God is good, amen. This little boy had a dream of greatness and God helped him achieve it, hallelujah. And that's the end, praise be to God. Success, 
fame, power, proximity to power, influence, all of these things. Amen and amen. For many people, this is in fact the gospel shape of the story. But this is not the end of Joseph's story. And it isn't the point of the gospel. It turns out that the dreams that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh... Uh, that resulted in him being brought to power were dreams that a great famine would fall on the land after seven years of plenty. So Pharaoh had a dream, Joseph interprets the dream, and the meaning of the dream is for seven years things are going to be real good. But after that, things are going to get real bad. That's the dream. And so what Pharaoh does is he actually says, okay, then during these seven years of plenty, let's kind of store away the excess. Let's plan for the famine that we know is coming seven years from now. So it's exactly what Pharaoh does. In all of Egypt, there's instructions for them to not waste the excess grain, but to store it for the, the famine that is to come. And they do that. And in fact, seven years after seven years of plenty, there is a great famine that falls on the land. And while neighboring nations starve and are hungry and have no food, Egypt is left with plenty. And so, this causes many, including Joseph's brothers, to come to Egypt from Canaan to buy grain. The brothers arrived in Egypt to buy grain and stood before Joseph, but they did not recognize him. All they saw, and how could they? I mean, how could they recognize him? Uh, this, is, this is many years, more than a decade later, after their teenage dreamer brother was thrown into a pit and left for dead and ended up being sold into slavery. This is over a decade later. And so how could they expect to see Joseph as second in command of all of Egypt. So when they go to Egypt and they meet with the second of command, they don't see their brother. They don't recognize their brother. All they see is a person in position of power. And what they do is, you guessed it, they bow down to this person in authority and in power. And they buy grain from their brother whom they don't yet recognize. In fact, Joseph, Joseph's dreams had come to pass. And actually it goes on like this a little bit. They return home with, with food. They then run out. So they come back to buy more. And of, co of course, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. But there is one time that they come to buy more grain. Joseph, having recognized them, invites them into the house for a feast. But they still don't know it's him. Even feasting at the table of their brother, they don't yet even recognize him. Eventually, Joseph has to reveal his identity to them. He has to say, this is who I am. Do you recognize me now? Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, and then the whole house of Jacob moves to Egypt, where they live with plenty. And then when Jacob dies, Jacob, the patriarch, becomes old and ill, and he passes away. But after Jacob dies, the brothers start getting nervous again. They start getting nervous that maybe Joseph is now going to exact revenge for the horrible things that they had done to him all those years prior. 
Have you ever heard the, um, you ever heard the saying, revenge is a plate best served cold? It's a little bit sinister. <laughs> but I kind of wonder if the brothers thought maybe Joseph had adopted that kind of worldview in life. Revenge is a plate that is best served cold. Turn over to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 14. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong that we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the wrong that they did to you, for their sin, is, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of, of, of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. So when Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, do not be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? For you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So no, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The brothers, fearful that Joseph would exact his revenge once Jacob the patriarch dies, um, find that in fact Joseph is not storing vengeance in his heart, but rather he is storing forgiveness, kindness, and compassion in his heart. This is the first time the word forgive appears in all of the scriptures. Church, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is introduced to us in the story of a beloved son who is rejected by his own people, stripped of his royal robe, bears the consequences of his, of his brother's sin, is brought to the depths and then exalted, but uses his position of power, authority, and blessing for the benefit and flourishing of others. And when faced with those who have wronged him, offers forgiveness. Oh, come on, somebody. Where do we find Jesus? All over this story. But we don't see it unless we look at the contour of the whole story. We don't see it until we see the whole thing. If we step back and we look at the whole shape of this story, we begin to see that the whole contour of Joseph's story bears the mark of Jesus. And it is, in fact, a gospel-shaped story, but not because it's a rags-to-riches story, right? 
The mistake that we often make is to think that the whole center of the gospel is sort of success, power, influence, proximity to power, and all of those kinds of themes, right? And we say, oh, look, God was with Joseph and he brought him from the pit to the palace. Praise be to God. That is not where the story is found, not at least in the gospel-shaped story. We find it all over. Jesus, like Joseph, was the beloved son of a father, scorned by his own people and cast into the pit of hell. But even in the depths, he was not forgotten, but he was raised, that is, resurrected, and then exalted to the right hand of God, where he now rules with power and authority for the benefit and flourishing, or shall we say salvation, of others. And when faced with his oppressors, Jesus offered forgiveness. The gospel story, this gospel story shows us there is no future without forgiveness. There is no future without forgiveness. When wrong has been done, a refusal to forgive freezes that situation so that it lives right in the front of our lives forever. A ref when a harm has been done, when someone has wronged you, a refusal to forgive freezes that situation in the front of our lives forever. It just places it right there, and we can't move past it. There is literally no future without forgiveness. But, on the other hand, with forgiveness, when we are harmed, when we are wronged, and we offer and are courageous enough to offer forgiveness to those who have harmed us, a future of infinite possibilities begins to open up. And I'm talking about forgiving others. I'm talking about forgiving ourselves. I'm talking about receiving the forgiveness of God. In every situation, if, I'm, if, I have, if I have wronged someone and I refuse to forgive myself, then I will never get past it. It, it freezes that offense in the front of my own heart and my own life, and I can't move past it until I learn to forgive myself. If someone has harmed me and I refuse forgiveness, then it freezes that situation. It freezes that harm and places it right in the front of my life. And now those folks who harmed me continue to do me harm because I have not offered forgiveness. Some of us live with a picture of God as God is this angry person in the sky just seeking to catch us doing something wrong. And we don't refuse, or we continue to refuse, we don't accept God's forgiveness. And it robs us of a possibility of infinite futures. There is no future without forgiveness. The nation of Israel, the very beginnings of it are right here. Had Joseph refused forgiveness, there would be no future for Israel. Out of Israel comes the Messiah. On a quite literal, tangible, tangible way, there is no future without forgiveness. 
And this story illustrates it perfectly. This gospel story also shows us that a Jesus-shaped life is one where success, blessing, privilege, power, etc. are not an end in themselves, but are to be used for the flourishing of those around us. The gospel story is not primarily found in the rags-to-riches story. The gospel is found in redemption, renewal, reconciliation, blessing, forgiveness, salvation, church. These are the markers of the gospel, not power, privilege, authority, and success. <laughs> Ooh, I'm spicy today. <laughs> right? And yet, how often... How often in our rhetoric, in, our, in the way that we think about things, do we think what we need is privilege, power, position, proximity to power, etc., etc., etc. We need to chase after those things. And I just want to say, church, there is nothing wrong with those things, but they are not an end in themselves. They are not a worthy end goal or end game. The gospel, the markers of the gospel are reconciliation, renewal, forgiveness, salvation, grace, mercy. Let us, as the people of God, pursue those things first. And if we happen to have positions of power and privilege, then let it be used to offer grace, mercy, forgiveness, and the markers of the gospel. And not make those things an end in themselves. And I, it just feels like the modern church has gotten those things kind of mixed up. Where we just kind of seek after and chase after primarily power, proximity to power, influence, uh, success, those kinds of things. You with me? And so this is, in fact, a gospel-shaped story. But I think it's found primarily at the end of Jacob's life when Joseph then has an opportunity to extend forgiveness and say the very things that you intended for harm, God has used for good. And I hold no vengeance in my heart. It is my full intention to continue to bless you and see to it that you are well cared for, for you are my family. Amen. Well, I think that if we will lean in and listen to this story, I think it could, could challenge us to the core in terms of what it looks like to have a Jesus-shaped life. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go for that promotion. I'm not saying that success is wrong or anything like that. Don't mishear me, right? It's what is, what is the goal? What are the key markers? Uh, what are we ultimately chasing after? That's what's important. Okay. Well, let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Uh, gracious God, we are inspired by this story. And we are challenged by this story. Uh, we live in a culture and in a world that chases after success. Um, has, has really made success and power and influence and wealth sacred. And so God, as the people of God, help us to know that, that these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but, 
Help us to resist the temptation of making them sacred and equal to the good news of the gospel. For the good news is found in forgiveness and mercy. And God, we are so thankful for the forgiveness and mercy that you have poured out for us. And that you have offered to us through the actions of your son, Jesus Christ on the cross. Who was in fact a beloved son, stripped of his robe, rejected by his people, who bore our sins, was sent into the depths, and then exalted. And who now holds power and authority over all of creation, but in such a way that salvation is brought to the people. God, help us to have Jesus-shaped lives. Help us in our lives to bear the key markers of the gospel. Whatever degrees of success or power or privilege or all these other things that we find in life, may our lives be truly marked by the fruit of the Spirit, by the marks of the gospel, we pray. And now would you join us around as we gather around the Lord's table. Meet us in this place, God. Meet us here. May we experience not just your presence, but your infinite love for us. May we experience your grace. And may we be shaped into your likeness as a result of gathering around the Lord's table, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.